After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head -head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits. Welcome to another episode of the David vs. Goliath podcast. I'm attorney Matt Dolman and with my partner in crime, Stan Guype. Stan? Glad to be here today. And today I know we're going to talk a little bit about an issue that a lot of people don't seem to understand if you're sort of lay people and, and just out in the community. And that's a difference between intentional torts and negligence. All right. You want to jump right into this? I will kind of like the difference, like intentional tort, okay, this, the simplest, I guess, distinction would be intentional tort would be someone gets in their car and hits you on purpose. Mm -hmm. And negligence would be someone just drives poorly and runs into you. So let's get into some of the distinctions about that and the differences. Yeah, your average consumer, the average person out there is not going to understand that when one does it on purpose, doesn't quite have the same implications or the same consequences if somebody does it by accident, by sheer negligence. So let's get into the... Uh, Juxtapose those examples for us. Well, I think the the basic thing is, on the surface, it almost doesn't matter, okay? Mm -hmm. Someone hits you on purpose, someone hits you by accident, they still technically owe you for all the damages they caused you, okay? Doesn't change. They hit you on purpose or negligence, they still owe you the money. Here's sure. the problem. If it's an intentional act, there's no insurance coverage because mm -hmm. there's no insurance coverage in the state of Florida for any intentional acts. So while the person may owe you the same amount of money, unless they're independently wealthy and have the ability to pay it, you don't collect anything unless you're able to show it's an accident or negligence as opposed to something intentional. Yeah, we're going to get to that later also. I mean, I don't want to go down a deep dive right now, but somebody who, who is independently wealthy does not mean we're going to be able to be successful in collecting from them. They have to actually have liquid assets that we can attach to. Yeah, well, that's a whole separate issue, right? Mm -hmm. But it, most of the time, 98%, 99, let's go 99.9% .9 of the claims we deal with are driven by insurance coverage. Correct. We're dealing with an insurance company who has said, look, we've got coverage for this incident, and we're talking about issues regarding who's at fault and how much the claim is worth. Then you've got that one outlier, okay? And I've, I've had a couple of these types of claims pop up typically in the assault and battery scenario, okay? If someone, like, let's say, Matt, I was to cut, like, like, get rid of everything else, okay? Not that we'd ever run upstairs after you punch you or anything, but let's say I ran upstairs and punched you in the face, right? Mm -hmm. We'd probably have a fight. I don't know that it would turn out well, but at the end of the day, if you tried to bring a claim against me and sue me for punching you in the face or damages that were caused, my insurance company would say, that's great, he owes you money, but we've got no coverage for this because we don't cover intentional torts. Yep. Now, people who walk into the office, they think, hey, this guy did it on purpose. It's clear that it's his fault. And that's true. That's true. It is very clear that it's someone else's fault when they do it on purpose. But that's usually a bad thing for the person who's been injured. Yeah, that, that nuance says it all. No, often use the term intentional criminal act instead of calling it intentional tort. Same thing, though. Well, and it makes sense, Matt, because we know each other. Mm -hmm. Let's say you could make a really good recovery from an intentional tort. I could come up and say, or you could come to me and say, hey, I'm going to come punch you in the face. 
cause a lot of injuries, then you can sue me and get a lot of money from my insurance company. Yeah. That's why there's a public policy against this and why you've got no coverage for an intentional tort. As ridiculous as that might sound, as asinine as it might sound, we deal with claims on a regular basis where we later on learn through uh, various means, including surveillance, that our clients made up stories that they, you know, without having the incentive to do this, they do it on their own regardless. So, yes, I can understand the legislative purpose of that statute. And people, you know, if you're a layperson, you may not understand necessarily the difference between an intentional tort and a, and a negligence. Okay, and I can, you know, I don't want to delve into odd sort of claims, but this pops up a lot in claims of negligent transmission of a sexual disease. This is a claim. Okay, if someone gives you a sexual disease, they, they are responsible if they did it negligently. But a lot of times there's no coverage for this because the person who transmits the disease knows he has it or she has it, mm -hmm. does not tell the partner and purposely exposes them to the risk, okay? So there's insurance coverage issues there. Yep. I mean, if they even if they lack the aforethought to think it out, and, you know, that's not their plan, they didn't go about it with malice, just the fact that they engaged in activity and knew about it beforehand puts them in that position. Absolutely. Uh, the other cases where I've had this come up and had to sort of explain this to people is a sexual assault case. Okay, mm -hmm. it's a horrible situation when someone's sexually assaulted, causes massive damages, physical, mental, emotional, all of these things, right? So people right. will come to you and say, "Look, I've, look at what's happened to me. This is horrible, and look at this awful person that did it." And when you look into it, okay, it's hard to show that this is not an intentional act. Almost all sexual assaults are intentional acts. Sure. The one situation I've had this pop up where it's a little different is. When you get into a criminal scenario, right, when you get into someone who's committed a crime, we almost run into a situation where at times the defendant is on our side, right, when we're bringing a civil claim because we're going to say he didn't mean to do this. This was an accident. Well, that benefits his criminal case. Right? Of course. When he's being sued, when he's going to jail, he's going to say, heck, if this was an accident, I didn't, I didn't mean to hit the person. I, I lost my mind. I was temporarily insane. It was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. Now, that testimony from the criminal case comes to benefit us in the civil arena because that's where we go to show this level of sort of mens rea or mental intent that is out there that goes to turn it from a negligent action to an intentional act. Sure. So if you've been a victim of someone uh, in any sort of scenario, be it a sexual assault, okay, be it a battery, be it a shooting, any of these types of things, the intent of the person who's harming you has a lot to do with your ability to make a recovery. And the law creates presumptions as well. Yes. There's always presumptions, okay? But yep. with insurance coverages, as you know, Matt, we just have to have an argument to keep them in the game. Hmm. There may be a presumption that something's intentional or a presumption that they meant to do it. But as a plaintiff attorney, our job, part of it, is to find coverages for our client and frame the case. You can't lie. You can't make up facts, okay? But you can frame it in a way so that the facts are presented most favorably to your client and gives the chance to get coverage. I've had this pop up. More often than not, in the negligent security bouncer realm, 
Okay, and these are people who get injured in fights, get injured by bouncers, things like that. So I can tell you one um, I had a couple years ago. A fight breaks out at a club. Bouncer's trying to break up the fight. Our guy gets caught in the middle of it and gets hit by the people in the fight, right? And they hit him on purpose. So we're sitting there going, man, he got hit on purpose by the people in the fight. The bouncer's there. Where do we go with this? Really, okay, well, the way we ended up prevailing on that case was the way we framed it. We didn't frame it as the dangerous condition being the fight. The dangerous condition and the negligence we sued over was the overcrowding in the club that made it impossible for our guy to get away from the fight once it started, right? So, so, so it's very important that when you're involved in situations like that, you go to an attorney who knows the distinctions, who knows how to present the claim. If I sent that claim to the insurance company and said, hey, my guy got beat up while he was at your club, they go, no, no coverage. That's an intentional act by a third party over which we have no control. You get back, back, no coverage, you're done. If you frame that as this is a situation where your overcrowded facility made it impossible for my guy to escape the danger, now I've put it on them. I've put it on them from a negligent standpoint. And they failed to satisfy their duty um, to warrant, uh, you know, the fact that it's going to be a safe venue for patrons. And the sort of bottom line underlying current to this is in a lot of scenarios that may seem intentional, okay, and that may seem at first that these are fully intentional, there may be an underlying negligence aspect to the claim that contributed to the injuries. And it's going to take a skilled attorney to sort of parse these things out, one. Number two, frame the case in such a way as to trigger coverage, okay? That's a skill. I mean, that's, that's not just a given. The way you present a claim causes insurance companies to either have to defend it or not. Correct. Have to cover the injury or not, okay? And, and you always, as an attorney, you want to make sure that to the extent there is any coverage out there for something, you manage to go get it. This is a heavily nuanced area. You're seeing these claims a lot also in homeowners policies, correct? Well, that's it. That's where most of them come from because mm-hmm. like 98% of people run around out there and think the bodily injury claims, your, your negligence, that's straight under your auto policy. Yep. Anything you do to hurt someone, for the most part, while you're not in a car, if it's negligence, it's going to be covered under a general liability negligence portion of your homeowner's policy, even if you do it away from your home. Which in every policy has language that expressly prohibits you know, or covers them from any type of claim where the underlying action was uh, a criminal act. Right. And, and and so that's where we get into a lot of these things. Assault and battery, okay. And we got into this a little bit in the beginning of the show where you were talking about what we do when we're dealing with independently wealthy people versus insurance companies versus the rest of this stuff. Yep. It's rare, okay, that we go after someone and get their independent assets. It's, it's exceedingly rare it's happened. But a question that comes up over and over again from clients wondering why we don't take the case further and go after the individual themselves, and we have to explain, kind of parcel out the issues of why there's insurance coverage or why in the absence of insurance coverage there's likelihood there's not a lot of assets. We'll still do an asset search, but just having a nice home, having a nice job, having a nice position is not – that in and of itself does very little for us. It's whether they have any liquid assets we can actually attach to. Yeah, some guy who's got $50,000 in the bank and, you know, is going to spend that money long before we can sue him and get at, and get control of it. Sure. The, the type of 
assets it takes to really pursue and go after, very, very few people have. Okay, yep. You're looking one, two percent of people out there in society have these kind of assets that if you were to come after them, say you owe someone $500,000, they've got the ability to write the check. I mean, most people just, just they can't, even if they wanted to. Yes. So the ability to go after someone personally, it's not the guy who bought the new Hellcat SRT who had an extra $40,000 and a good line of credit. This is a guy who's got stocks, who's got bonds, who's got liquid assets. You're typically looking at people in seven-figure homes. Mm -hmm. These kind of things are where you might, might find a situation where you can go after personal assets. Now, the caveat to that is most of the people in that category, not all, but most of the people in that category are highly educated or at least moderately educated. And try to avoid these scenarios at all costs. They're, they're cautious. You know, if someone's you know, worth 10, 20 million dollars, they're typically not out there raising hell and beating people up in bars. Just usually doesn't go down like that. But even if they wish, even if they do so, oftentimes there's been a number of uh, methods employed for wealth preservation where they've layered their assets. And we don't, this is a discussion for another day, another podcast, but it prevents the attack from plaintiff floor. Yeah. And so, that's a whole nother aspect there mm -hmm. of uh, wealth preservation. And there you're going to find that, and I guess we'll go on a tangent, uh, specifically uh, more so in careers like doctors and attorneys. Yep. Uh, the people who are likely to um, find some sort of liability through their professional livelihood. Uh, they typically yep. have asset protection programs where the you know assets are in their wife's names or in trust's names and things like that that you can't go after. Bottom line is, you're always better off if you're injured. No, I shouldn't say always. Ninety nine percent of the time, you're better off if you can show that the injury was an accident as opposed to an intentional act. Always, yeah, I would say. Well, now I'll stick with the nine nine point nine. I can think of a couple of rare exceptions, but no. People don't always realize that because I can't tell you how many people come into the office and they're doing everything they can to try to show that this is an intentional act that he meant to do it. That Oh, all the time. It's so clear cut, Matt. This is intentional. There's no way to show it. No other way. I'm like, well, maybe that's not the way we want to frame this. And there's, let's look at the underlying facts. There, There's a way we can possibly you know, parcel out if there's insurance coverage and if they owed a duty and they failed to provide proper security or, you know, we can go through a whole litany of reasons why an insurance company has exposed or a defendant rather has exposed themselves to an insurance claim. So, and the bottom line to this is anyone who's involved in a situation like this, mm -hmm. you're going to need a skilled attorney to evaluate the moving facts on the case. You're going to need a skilled attorney to see Hey, even though this may have looked like an intentional act on the surface, is there an element of negligence underlying here that's going to make someone or trigger an insurance coverage and provide some compensation for an injured person? And if you've been told you don't have a case from something like that, so we'd be happy to review it again, review the facts, let you know our take on it. Sure. We've noted that a number of lawyers have turned these cases down because they're not low-hanging fruit. So it's a heavily nuanced area, and we have to figure out whether there's some way, some argument, some angle where the uh, defendant failed to satisfy a duty where that opens up coverage. Yeah, and we get that a lot. I mean, we get cases that come through our door that other people have looked at and said, I don't see a claim here uh, that we review, maybe take a different approach to, maybe take a little bit different angle on presenting the claim and get six and seven figure verdicts and judgments out of these. Mm -hmm. 
time and time again. Yep. So, you know, and I guess I'd say to that, uh, if you've been told by an attorney that you don't have a claim, uh, if someone's looked at the facts of the accident and said there's no one to sue because of this, always have someone else. Always go out and get a second opinion. You know, it, it's kind of like a doctor, right? A doctor, you may go in and someone says you need a spinal fusion on three levels. Okay, another doctor may come in and say, let's try some injections. Let's try something a little less invasive. People have different ideas and different approaches to problems. The same approach doesn't solve every problem, and we'd love to take a look at any cases anyone's sort of been denied on because of it either being an intentional act or someone saying, look, we, we can't find anyone to go after. We'd be happy to spend our time looking after that. Yeah, without going too much detail, I mean, too many lawyers have, uh, again, they're looking for the low-hanging fruit. They've only handled car accident cases, or they haven't handled complicated personal injury claims. And if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, if all you've ever done is car accident cases and very simple low-hanging fruit on premises liability cases, you're never going to take the shot, these type of cases, and look for an underlying cause of action, which doesn't seem readily apparent in first glance and first blush. And I'm going to tell you this too, okay? You come to a plaintiff attorney, right? And it's something new, novel, and unique, right? We don't see it very often. Well, Matt, we get thousands of clients come through our doors, you know, in the time we've been open, the years we've been here. If it's new, novel, and unique to us, I can promise you the defense attorney hadn't dealt with it that many times either. So, yeah. you know, and what happens though is you get a lot of guys that are newer that think, oh man, I've never dealt with this before. This is so unique. You know, I can't get involved. Well, let me tell you, it's that way for the guy on the other side too. Mm -hmm. These unique fact patterns don't get dealt with a lot. So it takes a certain type of attorney to present those claims when they haven't seen them before, to see the avenue of recovery where other people's go, it's difficult. Yep, newer lawyers are lawyers who don't typically litigate. Yep, I can remember one specifically, just to kind of go after. I had a guy who was a migrant uh, worker uh, picking strawberries out here in Plant City. And one day, one night, you know, all the guys drink, it, it, these guys, migrant workers, they live on the farms in these little housing communities on the farms. They're really kind of I'd never been out there before to see him, but I visited this guy in his in his community where he lived, and it was, you know, six, seven people sleeping on mattresses, on floors, and overcrowded housing. You know, not like necessarily unsanitary, but definitely not the kind of place I would want to be. Okay. Sure. Well, what happens is, okay, the community as a whole knows that on Saturday night you got a lot of migrant workers. Okay. And some of them might be illegal. They don't have bank accounts. So they all get paid in cash at the end of the week. And they're sitting in this little community and all of them have cash. There's probably ten dollars to $15,000 in cash that's been paid out to these people on that day. Okay. One, a lot of them aren't legal. They're migrants. They're not likely to call the police when something happens. So they are sitting ducks out there. Right? And what happens? Somebody comes in, says, hey, I want everyone's cash. My guy goes to get his cash out of his pocket. I think the guy thinks he's trying to pull a gun and shoots him. Mm -hmm. First attorney that looked at it, signed up the case, had it for about six months, and then said, look, this, this is an intentional act by an unknown shooter. Not anything we can do, right? And, and discharge came. Guy came to us, and I think, Matt, you probably know exactly where we went with this. Yeah. We went, well, it's not about the guy who did the shooting. This is about the, the lack of security that, this employer provided when you know there's $15,000 in cash in these houses every Friday night, and everyone knows it. Yep. You need to take reasonable measures to keep predatory people off that premises, okay? We sued. We won. 
we got life-changing money for this guy, okay? This guy's not working anymore. Oh, had he just gone to one attorney, he'd be so out of luck, Matt. That means this guy had nothing. He's a migrant worker. He's being disabled, okay? Because he came to us and got someone else to take a second look at it, we gave this guy a life a life-changing outcome, and it, and it makes you feel good when you dig up stuff like that. 100%. Yeah, a great outcome. So that's just kind of one anecdotal thing. After being told he didn't have a case. After being told he didn't have a case. And that's why I say it's always good to get a second set of eyes on things. It's a really nuanced thing. An intentional act doesn't always mean that there's not some underlying negligence somewhere uh, that has an insurable and collectible aspect to it. And that's how we attack our cases. All right. Well, this has been kind of interesting. You know, it's one of those issues that doesn't always come up, but when it does come up, it usually comes up in a big way. And I I, I almost enjoy these cases a lot. And I'm I'm kind of a little strange in that aspect because usually when you get into this, it's there's like a bullying aspect to it. There's someone who's harmed another person. Mm -hmm. And it's always good to punch the bully. That always feels good. So there's sort of a little element of personal satisfaction to this kind of stuff, too, that that drives me when we get involved. Yep. And you were right before, though, the prospective client always says, I mean, always, literally, it was so open and obvious, Matt, they definitely did some purpose. And you're like, maybe not. May not be the best thing to say. So may not be the best thing to say. It might be another angle we can attack this on because that just killed that claim. Yes. It's been a pleasure, Stan. Hey, always, it's been another episode of David vs. Goliath podcast. We always enjoy doing this. Gets a little loose. You get to kick back and forth ideas and things. We don't always talk about just sitting around the office. Correct. Always been a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Wish everyone a great day. All right. Thank you again. This episode of David vs. Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. That's D-O-L-M-A-N law.com or call 866-965-6242. The insights and views presented in David vs. Goliath are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. Any case result information provided on any portion of this podcast should not be understood as a promise of any particular result in a future case. Dolman Law Group. Big firm results. Small firm personal attention.